unlike the other Gospels, the Apostle John focuses primarily on the Roman trial. During Jesus' time, Israel was under domination of the Roman Empire, and although the Jews were permitted to conduct judicial proceedings and punish criminals, they were forbidden to punish anyone by death. So the chief priests and the elders needed an agreement, the, the agreement of Pilate if Jesus was to be executed as they had hoped. Pilate ordered Jesus to be brought to him inside his palace where he could privately question him. Jesus made it clear to Pilate that he was indeed a king, but that his kingdom was not an earthly one. His kingdom was in heaven because it was only in heaven that everyone gave him allegiance. The reason he left his heavenly kingdom was to bring truth to the world, but it was only those who loved the truth who recognized the truthfulness of his words. Pilate realized that Jesus was not a dangerous threat to the stability of the Roman kingdom, and to his credit, he did practically everything he could to set Jesus free. First, he boldly announced to the chief priests and the crowd outside that Jesus was not guilty of any punishable crime. But Pilate was faced with the crowd of Jewish leaders who were demanding Jesus' death. Apparently, there were other Jews at his doorstep who wanted him to release one prisoner, as was the custom every Passover. Seeing another opportunity to obtain Jesus' release, Pilate offered them a choice. Did they want to release a murderer named Barabbas or Jesus? Surely, given the choice, the crowd that now consisted of others besides the chief priests and elders would pick Jesus. But the chief priests and the elders were able to persuade the crowd to request Barabbas' release and to cry out for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate's second attempt to release Jesus had failed and pressure was mounting on both sides. Let's continue by reading John chapter 19, verses 19 to 22. Or sorry, verses 1 to 22. <clears throat> then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail! king of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. But the Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either, either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one 
who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which, is, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation, a Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written. Wanting even more to release Jesus, but facing the pressure of a large crowd that included many Jewish leaders, Pilate offered a compromise. He would punish Jesus and then release him. He ordered that Jesus be flogged with a lead-tipped whip, a brutal punishment that ripped a person's back to shreds and often resulted in death. The soldiers who performed the flogging also mocked mocked Jesus, placing a crown of thorns on his head and hit him. Before presenting him to the crowd, Pilate again declared Jesus' innocence and then brought him out, beaten and bloody, to be seen by all, hoping that the sight of his suffering would compel them to have some compassion. But the crowd continued to call for his crucifixion. In desperation, Pilate cried out, You crucify him. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders, realizing that Pilate would not be persuaded that Jesus was guilty of breaking Roman law, appealed by revealing their true charges against him. Jesus had broken Jewish law by claiming to be God's son. Now Pilate knew more of the truth, and it frightened him. He took Jesus back inside his palace to further question him, but Jesus did not answer. It had been a long, long morning, and it was almost noon. Having exhausted his resources, Pilate finally caved in to the crowd. In one final symbolic act, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, Pilate washed his hands in front of them and declared, I am innocent of the blood of this man. The responsibility is yours. Then he turned Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. So the question is, although Pilate declared his own innocence before the crowd, was he completely innocent before God? May I suggest that the answer is no. 
because he could have stood his ground against the crowd, regardless of what it cost him. People often claim their innocence by putting the blame on others. For example, people who write or produce sinful TV programs and movies often justify what they do by saying they are only giving people what they want. But that is not an, ex- ex- uh, an acceptable excuse before God. Some people justify their lying by saying that their boss requires it, but they could quit their job. I'm told of a gentleman right here in Timmins who is of a different faith than ours, who has a very high managerial position in a global company. He has quit his job because the company will now be selling alcohol and his religion forbids the touching of alcohol. Is our faith as strong as his? Would we quit our job, our livelihood, for our beliefs? The most important question that we could ask God is this. What does God think about what I'm doing? He is the one to whom we must ultimately answer to. So when Pilate said to Jesus, Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Jesus responded, You would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. Jesus meant that Pilate would not have any authority to decide Jesus' faith unless God had allowed him to have that authority. God is the source of all authority, and no one possesses any authority without his permission, whether it is for good or for evil. Pilate could not have been a Roman governor unless God had allowed it. I don't think that God approves of all world leaders, but he does allow them to rule. Why? Well, we can come up with all kinds of theories, but his reason is not always ours. He does have a purpose for everything under heaven, whether it is for our benefit or whether it is to leave us to our own demise. But it really doesn't matter who has political power anywhere in this world because our God is on the throne. In one way, we're all like Barabbas. We deserve to die, but Jesus took our place. I wonder what Barabbas was thinking when he was saved from his fate and released, and then watching Jesus, an innocent man, being led away to be crucified. Pontius Pilate's handling of the trial of Jesus reveals an indecisive man, a weak man, a compromising man. Rome's motto was, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. And Pilate was not concerned about justice. His only concern was to protect himself, his job, and Rome. And he failed in all three. Pilate is seeking to find some loophole that would please both sides. He was afraid of the crowd, but then he grew more and more afraid of the prisoner. At least three times he announced that Jesus was not guilty of any crime, yet he refused to release him. Pilate's conscience is also telling him that there is something very unusual about Jesus. He has sat in judgment over hundreds of men. Perhaps he knows how people will respond 
when faced with a death sentence. Perhaps he expects to see either a trembling soul pleading for mercy and begging for his life or a hardened criminal trying to bribe his way out of trouble. Every answer that Jesus gave Pilate brought more and more truth to bear on his conscience. Jesus answered those questions by talking about the real source of authority, which is God, not Caesar. Jesus had talked to Pilate about the nature of his kingdom, a kingdom not from this world, but from heaven above. He had talked with him about two kinds of people, those on the side of the truth and those in opposition to the truth. Pilate progressively realizes that there is something highly, very unusual about Jesus. Here we see Pilate struggling with his own conscience. Everything within him is saying that Jesus is innocent. There's obviously something unusual unusual about Jesus that may very well be supernatural. And Pilate knows what is right. He has the authority by his own confession to do the right thing. But here's the problem. The voice of the crowd is in conflict with his conscience and he wants to please the crowd. And Pilate has a lot to lose here. He's in a position of power and advantage. He is respected. He probably makes good money and he has a great future. The problem is, if he follows his conscience, he may lose all that. He has already been reprimanded by Rome for mishandling previous events. And he does not need to have more complaints sent in from the local authorities. Yes, he is in charge, but Caesar's approach to government is to pacify the locals as much as possible and keep collecting their taxes. And if Pilate can't handle this, then they will find someone who can. The Jewish leaders know Pilate's vulnerability and they play it to the hilt. In verse 12 of our text, when Pilate tried to set Jesus free, the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. And that hit Pilate's struggle dead center. The right thing to do was to set Jesus free. But was he willing to pay the price to do the right thing? Pilate did what we often are tempted to do in a situation like this. He tried to avoid the decision as much as possible. And the Jewish leaders forced Pilate's hand by saying that Jesus had claimed to be a king. And a Roman governor could not ignore that kind of claim without getting into trouble with his superiors. If he ignored it, and then Jesus led a rebellion, he would be accountable for not dealing with it. Do you notice the significant contrast between Pilate and the religious rulers in Jerusalem? Jesus addresses this contrast in verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Aren't we taught to believe that all sin is the same? Aren't we taught to believe that in God's eyes, all sin is the same? We know from Scripture that there is only one sin that can't be forgiven, and that's in John 3.18 where Jesus says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. But does God see all sin equally? Is there a greater sin, as Jesus states? Pilate had been guilty of sin already, in scourging Christ and allowing the Roman soldiers to abuse him. And he would be guilty of a greater sin by delivering him up to be crucified, whom he knew was innocent. But the sin of Judas in delivering him into the hands of the chief priests and the elders, and the chief priests and the elders and the people of the Jews in delivering him to Pilate to crucify him, according to the Roman manner, were greater inasmuch as theirs proceeded from malice and envy, and it was done against a greater light and a greater knowledge. Even unto the cross, Jesus continues to condemn religious leaders. I can't find anywhere in Scripture where he is so hard on unbelievers as he is on the religious leaders. It's the religious leaders of the time that he warns and he confronts. I think that's a good lesson for us today. I think this may apply to his church today. Why are so many people attracted to Jesus back then, yet are turned off by today's Christians? Even the history of the church is shameful, because when religion and politics are combined, and the church has political power over people, the church has proven to be the persecutor of those who do not believe as the church does. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, writes that grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. It's a spiritual nova in our midst, exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. Sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church sometimes presents one or more forms of ungrace. Too often, we resemble grim folks rather than those who have been shown grace. When I say the words evangelical Christian, what comes to mind? In reply, mostly I hear political descriptions, a strident pro-life activist, a gay rights opponents, or proposals for censoring the Internet. Not once, not once, have I heard a description redolent of grace. Apparently, that is not the aroma that Christians give off in the world. I have been picking on Christians because I am one. And I see no reason to pretend that we are better than we are. So by Jesus' works, his miracles, and his ministry, as well as by their own prophecies, the religious leaders of the time must have known that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Most scholars conclude that Jesus is referring to the high priest Caiaphas when he says, the one who handed you over to the one that handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Because it's doubtful that Pilate knew anything about Judas. He would have probably understood Jesus to be talking about the religious ruler of the Jews who had brought him to brought him to brought Jesus to him, sorry. Notice that Jesus does indicate degrees of sin and guilt in the statement. There is good evidence that there will be degrees in hell. For when the books are open on Judgment Day, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, 
verses 12 to 15. One commentator says this, After the wicked surround the city of God, but before they are destroyed, God opens the books of heaven and shows each one of the lost the record of his life of rebellion against God. They also see the love of God in the effort he has expended to effect their salvation and in the blood of the Son of God poured out on their behalf. The record books of heaven portray in unmistakable detail their selfishness, cruelty, and every part of their rejection of God's authority. They will see clearly why their names are not in the book of life. All the wicked will be fully convinced of God's justice in the sentence of eternal death pronounced against them. All of God's, ju- God's judgments are seen to be fair and honest. The entire, host of the, the entire host of the lost will bow down and confess that God is just. Then the wicked receive their punishment in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. The striking thing about this judgment, according to the deeds or works, is that John does not mention any among the dead whose works were found acceptable to God. He tells us that if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders had sinned against more light than Pilate had. They had the scriptures and they were in spiritual leadership. But they were also far more set in their opposition to Jesus than Pilate was. Today, there are people like Caiaphas who are all out against Jesus. They have, a, they have had a great opportunity to know the truth. But instead of loving the truth, they have set themselves in opposition to the truth. They have the greater condemnation. So what about Pilate's compromise? Caiaphas may have greater guilt, but Pilate is nonetheless guilty. He violated his own conscience. In 1 Timothy 6.13, Paul reminded Timothy that Jesus witnessed a good confession before Pilate. Pilate had every opportunity to make the right choice, but simply decided to protect his own position rather than to do the right thing. By washing his hands before the crowd, he was sending a message to the Jewish crowd. But Pilate was not innocent of the blood of Jesus. He not only flogged an innocent man, but he authorized his crucifixion. And the ritual of washing one's hands would not change that fact. Even today, people try to use rituals the way Pilate did. People who have never surrendered their lives to Christ go through water baptism, thinking that that ceremony by itself will give them a right standing before God. But just doing a ritual without the spiritual reality is not sufficient. Pilate's ritual did not remove his guilt. Pilate did one other thing to appease his conscience. He had a sign fastened to Jesus' cross which said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The chief priests of the Jews protested. And they said, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. 
Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate is obviously still in personal, in a personal struggle. I'd love to know the conversation that went on between Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea when that devout follower of Jesus went to Pilate for the body of Jesus. It'd be interesting to hear the conversations that went on between Pilate and his wife once the stories about Jesus' resurrection began to circulate around Jerusalem. We do not know what eventually happened to Pilate. There's all kinds of traditions and legends that exist. We do know from the historian Josephus that Pilate eventually lost his position that he tried so desperately to retain at the trial of Jesus. In 36 AD, Pilate was called to Rome to answer complaints, complaints brought against him and his governorship ended. When we're faced with any kind of moral struggle, we should ask God to give us the grace and the courage to do the right thing. I like the way Max Lucado puts it. Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Just give me a reason, he thinks. I'll set you free. Pilate sits in his chair and stares at Jesus. How many wide eyes have stared back at Pilate, pleading for mercy, begging for acquittal, but the eyes of this Nazarene are calm, silent. He's not angry with me. He's not afraid. He seems to understand. What should I do with this Jesus, the one called Christ? What do you do with a man who claims to be God, yet hates religion? What do you do with a man who knows the place and the time of his death, yet he goes there anyways? You can reject him, or you can accept him. You can journey with him. You can listen for his voice among the hundreds of voices and follow him. So are all sins the same in God's eyes? It's always dangerous and difficult to attempt to list sins according to the degrees of seriousness. In one sense, all sins are equal in that they all separate us from God. The Bible statement for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 applies to all sin, whether in thought, word, or deed. At the same time, it seems obvious that some sins are worse than others in both motivation and effects, and should be judged accordingly. Stealing a loaf of bread is vastly different than exterminating a million people. Sins may also differ at the root. Theologians have sought for centuries to determine what the essence of sin is. Some have chosen sensuality, others selfishness, and still others pride or unbelief. In the Old Testament, God applied different penalties to different sins, suggesting suggesting variations in the seriousness of some sins. In Exodus chapter 22 and Leviticus chapter 20, we're we're told that a thief is to pay restitution. An occult practitioner was to be cut off from Israel. A (coughs) A person who committed adultery or a homosexual act or cursed his parents, and I'll repeat it again, or cursed his parents, was put to death. In the New Testament, Jesus said, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom 
than for Capernaum because of Capernaum's unbelief and refusal to repent after witnessing his miracles. The sins of Sodom were identified in Ezekiel 16.21 as arrogance, gluttony, indifference to the poor and the needy, haughtiness, and detestable things. When Jesus spoke of his second coming and judgment, he warned that those deserving punishment, that some would be beaten with many blows and others with few blows. Luke 12, 47, 48. He also reserved his most feared denunciations for the pride and the unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders, not the sexually immoral. Matthew 23, 13, 36. However, whether our sins are relatively small or great, they will place us in hell apart from God's grace. The good news is that God loves us and he offers a wonderful plan for our life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, that it may be full and meaningful. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mankind was created to have fellowship with God, but because of his stubborn self-will, he chose to go his own independent way. And fellowship with God was broken. The self-will characterized by an attitude of active rebellion or passive indifference is evidence of what the Bible calls sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, which is spiritual separation from God. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for mankind's sin. Through him we can know and experience God's love and his plan for our life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God knows our heart, and he's not so concerned with our words as he is with the attitude of our heart. For he says to each one of us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Have you let Christ into your heart? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you feel the need to have Jesus in your life, please take a moment right now and bow in prayer and ask Jesus into your life and to be your Lord and your Savior. You will forgive your sins, no matter how terrible you think that they may are. They are. For he went to the cross for this moment. He went to the cross for you. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and the sins of the whole world at the cross. If we repent and turn to Jesus, 
in faith, our sins will be forgiven. And we will receive the gift of eternal life. For only through the Lord Jesus is there forgiveness and salvation. Please stand for our closing song of the day. Lord, we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for willingly taking our place. Father, we just, we just lift up all praises and glory to you. Father, help us to be better persons for you. Help us to show the love of Jesus in everything and everywhere we go. Father, we just lift this uh, day to you. Lord, we lift everybody in this building to you, Lord. We ask for your blessings. We ask that you keep us on your track, the track of Jesus. And Lord, we just pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.